Hello everyone and welcome to Iroquois History and Legends. This is Andrew. We've got another update for you folks. Caleb and I plan on releasing another episode in the coming weeks. Uh, we're pleased to report that his wife will soon be graduating from medical school. That will free Caleb up to have more time to hopefully get out our next episode on the life of the famous Seneca General Ely Parker. We do have a new show for you today though. Well, kind of new. This episode was recorded over two years ago when I was on the One Dish, One Mike podcast. It's hosted by two men, Sean Vanderclis, who is a Mississauga, and Carl Dockstader from the Oneida Nation. Now, if that name Dockstader sounds familiar, you're right. I haven't exactly heard from Carl himself if it's true or not, but... If you go back to our episode on Oriskany in the Revolutionary War, you'll remember that Han Yeri and his amazing wife Two Kettles Together, they had the surname Dockstader as well. Just makes me wonder. Anyway, these two gentlemen usually discuss topics relevant to the indigenous peoples and their neighborhoods in the Ontario area. But they're not just limited to that. Recently, they were both selected to be winners of the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation and the Canadian Journalism Foundation Award. The name of their show comes from the idea of one dish and one spoon. It's an ancient concept that goes back to at least the foundation of the Haudenosaunee Confederacy. In fact, if you read their constitution, the Great Law of Peace, when people from other nations would get together and gather, they would share a ceremonial bowl of cooked beaver tail. Everyone would partake of the same bowl, and they would pass, or do pass, a single spoon to symbolize that they're all in this together. It's specifically written that no knives or forks are ever allowed to be used in case someone is accidentally cut when they're passing the utensil or cutting up food. This ensures that no fights or offenses can occur when people from different towns and nations are attending a conference. The one dish, one spoon model has another dimension as well. The concept is that all the resources in an area and indeed the world are limited and each nation needs to live side by side and take care not to overuse the land, wildlife, or hoard other commodities so that everyone can have access to them, including the future generations. Uh, today, at least in the United States, we call this approach conservation. We try not to deplete the environment beyond its capacity to continue to renew its natural resources so that wildlife populations can repopulate after we harvest animals or harvest trees or cultivate the land. We want to make sure that it's done in a way that makes sure that what we're doing is sustainable. This treaty also allowed different peoples to have hunting areas that would overlap each other without hostilities breaking out, realizing that they had a mutual understanding that each tribe in turn would only take what they need, that they wouldn't kill all the wildlife in a particular area when they hunted, but just enough to help them survive for the winter. There was a wampum belt created for this, for the Treaty of 1701, which we talk about all the way back in episode 20. Uh, the pattern for the belt is a field of white with a single purple oval in the middle. Uh, this symbolizes a bowl. And then inside that is an image of a white spoon. This is an extremely famous treaty, and it's mentioned in historical records by both indigenous and colonial people uh, for hundreds of years. Even Joseph Brant and Sir William Johnson talked about this and, and used it in legal proceedings. Anyway, that's a whole lot of background information, but the following is the entire interview on the One Dish, One Mike show. I want to give a special thanks to Carl, who gave us permission to air this on our channel, and hopefully we can have him on one day soon. So if you're interested, please check out their show when you're done with ours. In the heart of the One Dish with One Spoon Treaty Territory, Niagara's Sean Vanderclis and Carl Dockstader dish on any and all issues from a First Nations perspective. From pipeline politics to poverty to pan-Indianism and more, Sean shares his concrete curve leg take and Carl gives an urban Oneida angle. You are listening to One Dish, One Mic on the Niagara Podcasters Network. 
So, longtime listeners of One Dish One Mike know that uh, Sean and I have pretty much figured out the entire universe. I think I think we're experts in everything, right? We have it down to a science. Yeah, we do, we do. So, but in spite of that, every now and again, we think that it's worthwhile to bring in people that may be more knowledgeable than than ourselves in in some areas, or people that have subject matter expertise. So, on that note. I think that there are probably a lot of our listeners that also listen to another show called the Iroquois History and Legends podcast. So I wonder if there's any way that we could that we could reach out to them and get them on the show. Magically, right? Magically, yeah. I, I think it's possible. Yeah, I wonder. Maybe if we just send good thoughts that, <laughs> that we could like conjure conjure them to to come and, and visit our show. Right. I'm gonna insert meditation pose right now <laughs> and hopefully we'll be one. Yeah, it's Andrew from Iroquois history and legends. Hey, how you doing? Wow, that's amazing that that uh, that you're joining us here today. Uh, I'm yeah. I'm a huge fan of your podcast, so I I might actually turn into a big giggling fanboy by by the end of the show, perhaps. Um, but uh, yeah, we're we're honored to to have you on. Well, thanks, guys. You you're giving me too much credit. No, it's a pretty it's a pretty cool idea. What what made you want to do? You're not are you Iroquoian, Andrew? I am not. No, not one bit. Okay. So, yeah. So first off, people are like, oh, what's, what are these two, uh, two white guys doing talking about Haudenosaunee history? So uh, my brother and I, we uh, record and produce the podcast. We've been doing it for about two years now. And it pretty much started back when we were kids, not the podcast per se, because <laughs> those didn't exist. Uh, but growing up, uh, we loved reading, um, I'm sure you're familiar with the book, Scunny Wundy by Arthur Parker. Yep. And it was traditional uh, Onondaga Seneca um, stories that they tell their children. And we just really enjoyed that. Um, we live here in Canandaigua, New York, which is on Onondaga land. And it's the site of probably one of the most famous treaties between the United States and the Six Nations, the Treaty of Canandaigua in 1794. So, from the time that we were little, our dad would take us to Treaty Day. Every single year, members of the Six Nations and the United States government meet here in our city at Treaty Rock, and we uh, rebrighten the covenant chain. And so growing up around here, it was just this epicenter of history, and we just had a love for it. And uh, our parents really instilled in us uh, a desire and a passion talking about uh, Indigenous people and they said, you know, my dad is a pastor, and he said, you know, he preached a sermon once on why treaties are important, and he talked about how there's a story in the Bible a long time ago when the Israelites had a plague going on, and they couldn't figure out what was going on, and they prayed to God, and God said, it's because you broke treaty with the Gibeonites and you killed them. Uh, the Gibeonites were the indigenous people of the land. The Israelites came in, they made a treaty with them, but then a couple hundred years later, they backstabbed and killed most of them. And so they needed to repent of that. And my dad just pointed out that, you know, to be a Christian really is if you make a treaty with someone, it's a, it's not a short-term contract. It's a covenant, which is a, a perpetual treaty that should not be broken by either side. And so he really instilled that in us from the beginning. And so fast forward to when we're adults and we just have this love and passion for history. And we, my brother and I said, well, let's make a, let's make a history podcast. And um, we said, well, what should we do it on? And after reading and researching, we just found that there was literally zero historical podcasts on indigenous people. And then, well, okay, how do you whittle it down? Because you have hundreds of different uh, nations and tribes and throughout North and South America so who do we pick? Well, we pick the people that we live near. That's that cool. In a nutshell is how we got there. Yeah, that's that's really cool. I mean, you you threw a lot of really neat nuggets out there. Uh, I think that I didn't even know how historically significant where where you lived was. I think we were talking before we taped the show that, that I took my family out to Ganandigan. And uh, I didn't realize that you lived near every year the Indian Defense League of America sends a representative out. I think it's November 11th to... That, to, is, that is the date, yes. Yeah, to re-polish the covenant chain. And one year, my, my cousin actually went out there. He was president of, of the IDLA at the time. And there, there really is a lot of ceremony that, that ties into to that relationship. And I don't, I don't know how much the United States is, is honoring that particular treaty now. And then there are detractors on, on our side of the lines, too, and members of the Haudenosaunee that, that really question whether that treaty is a good thing or a bad thing. But 
I like what you said about about your Christian value system and honoring the the covenant and and sort of the agreement that if you've made a treaty in principle to to be friends that regardless of the particulars it's it's a good idea to try and to try and move forward and do that. I think I think that's something we talk about a lot on this show. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I you've done several episodes talking about it. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> No, I, I, I we don't um you might be our second non-indigenous guest as well. Um we had Charlie Angus on who uh was at the time running to become the leader of of our federal uh sort of left-leaning new democratic party and then I think I think we've had only only indigenous guests. So for us we we do have a fair amount of non-indigenous listeners. And even though we've done a, a what I think was a really good episode on on how to be an ally, and yep. I think we lay out some paths. I mean, I kind of like the path that that you've taken. Like you saw this gap out there, you happen to live next to an area that's that's rich with history. So so why not go and put it out on a podcast, right? Yeah, exactly. And the more we researched and the more uh, we learned, it was just like, how can we not do this? Because you know, I. I'm a history buff and I had a general knowledge of uh, the six nations and what they contributed to. But after really diving in and researching it, it's like, Oh my goodness. Why does nobody know about this? stuff? <laughs> yeah. I'm like three quarters of the way through uh, 1491 by Charles C. Mann. And yep. <clears throat> we didn't get our own section in there. Like, like I felt like the contributions of, of the Haudenosaunee, even in pre-contact yeah. times, like, that uh, really that may be warranted. There's a couple of honorable mentions here and there and mentioning like the eagle and the holding the arrows. And, and there, there's a lot of American symbolism that, that comes from the Haudenosaunee people. But, but in those types of books, again, it, it we're sort of like the forgotten contributors sometimes. Yeah. So. And I have read that book and yeah, you're right. I think there's one or two paragraphs that the Confederacy is mentioned in. And that's, you know, he mainly focuses on Mesoamerica kind of uh, Inca culture. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So, um, but, uh, he, you know, he's doing his best and I guess people are doing his best. And actually that led me to, to a question that, that isn't on the list of, of sort of things that we had outlined. And that's, I'd, I'd heard you mention like one of your earlier episodes was for lack of a better name, an ethnobotany episode about, about sort of uses of plants and the way that the Haudenosaunee people might've, might've lived pre-contact. And it doesn't seem like there's a lot of information out there, particularly written information about, about Haudenosaunee pre-contact people. And I, I think Anishinaabe people, I think it's a very similar sort of situation <laughs> yeah. where, again, I don't know if, if, if historians and, and, or ethno anthropologists have sort of overlooked it or if there's so much disagreement on, on how it would have worked, but there doesn't seem to be any definitive. It's like, it's like history started on Turtle Island from in 1492 <laughs> and onwards, yeah. right? Are there resources that you're aware of that uh, maybe some of our listeners could look into? Well, it's going back a while, so I'd have to look at my notes for what we use for references. Um, a lot of it, we, you know, we scoured uh, Indigenous uh, members of the Six Nations, their websites to, you know, learn about their clan systems. A lot of them, uh, there's stories, like I think there was one uh, where they talked about where the clans came from. It was a traditional Oneida story, and it talked about um, where the, the clans came from for condolence ceremonies for how one clan would support the other during a, a death in the in a family. And it talked about the, the woman going down to the river and I think a turtle and uh, a bear and uh, oh shoot, now, now I'm trying to keep it straight. Beaver, is that what the Kiyuga have? They have three clans, I believe. Is that right? The Oneidas have the, the bears, the wolves, the and the turtles. Yeah. That's right. That's right. It was the Oneida. It wasn't the Kiyuga. My mistake. No, no, it's all, it's it's all good. Yeah, there there. Um, uh, I think I think there's a gap. I think there's a vacuum. I think that your show your show does does for sure some some good work in in filling that gap. And I, I mean, I've listened, and uh, I I can be that person that will pounce on any little mistake or whatever. And I I have to admit, like I mean, I guess I could get nitpicky about maybe some pronunciation or some things here and there, but but all in all, I think I think the show is pretty good. So. But are there, has anybody ever approached you and said, like, like you're not Indigenous guys and you're doing a podcast on Indigenous subject matter? Like, what's up with that? <laughs> um, we, our support has been overwhelmingly positive. Uh, the emails we get from people, both uh, American, Canadian, and Indigenous, has been overwhelming positive. And we've gotten them from all members of the Six Nations, members of people from other Indigenous nations. And the, we've only ever gotten one negative thing. And it was an iTunes review that gave us one star and it said, 
uh, non-Indigenous people doing Indigenous history, question mark. Um, this is not real history. Was that you, Sean? I think that may have been me. No, I I'm sorry about that, guys. <laughs> it's before but, I knew. Before I knew you guys were coming on the show. <laughs> but, I'm joking. I'm joking. Uh, we, we He's kidding. He's kidding. Clo- yeah. We have close to 200 iTunes reviews. And that, oh, wow. that's, the, that's the only negative one that we got. And uh, I'm sorry. I, I'm sorry. I can't help that I'm white. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing I can do about it. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I can try to be a positive and infer, affirming ally, which we, we try to strive for. My brother and I, we said when we did this, we're not out here to politicize. We're not here to monetize. We don't do any advertising. We don't do any selling of merchandise. We solely do this because we love history and we want to honor the history of the members of the Six Nations and what they did for the United States. Because the more and more we read about it, the more and more like I can lit- I'm not exaggerating when I say if it was not for specifically the members of the United Nation, America would not exist. Oh, if you if you can't see, Carl's doing his happy dance right now. Yeah, that's right. You, you hit the nail on the head in Carl's eyes. Yeah, that's right. We, we brought the corn at Valley Forge. <laughs> if you ain't got corn, you ain't got nothing. So. No, but... <laughs> Hashtag corn is life. <laughs> right? I mean, you say brought the corn, but I mean, if it wasn't for Polly Cooper, who literally brought the corn to save George Washington's army, you know... Hundreds more people would have starved to death. And, you know, another woman like uh, two kettles together. And, you know, Carl, I know your last name. Are you related to her by chance? I hope so. I hope so. Because <laughs> her, her story is pretty bad. I mean, she is like, I mean, you talk about women like Boudicca or Mulan. But, I mean, I'll take two kettles together side by side in battle any day of the week. She's just an awesome, awesome woman. And. That's the, that's the other cool thing is that it's uh, Haudenosaunee women that primarily uh, are a huge player in the history as well. It's not just relegated to the men because obviously in a matrilineal society, they're going to take the lead. But it, it's just so cool to see that their influence is uh, just so powerful. Yeah, I'm I'm totally down with that. I uh, I heard about two kettles together through through your podcast. I think I think it was the Battle of Ariskany where she popped out. Uh, yes, and uh, which is sort of actually that that might segue into something else. I was I was hoping to talk about today because at the Battle of Ariskany, according to everything I've ever seen, that that was really the first time that that there was full on war between members of the Six Nations since the establishment of of the Confederacy itself. The great the great peace is considered to be very central to our ways, but at Ariskany, um, Joseph Brandt made the decision to, to really turn on his own people. And he brought Mohawks and, and some allies and yeah. they, they violently uh, slaughtered some of the Oneidas, which, which initiated full on, full on full contact warfare, no holds barred between the six yeah. nations. And, and there are some people that might argue that that time period between the battle of Ariskany and around the turn of the uh, 19th century or, or 1799, uh, I always get my 17th, 18th, 19th <laughs> centuries up mixed up. So, so around, uh, around 1799, uh, 1800, there, there are academics that, that would argue that, that that was it. That was the end of our nationhood. Around the time of Pontiac's Rebellion is, is the last time that, that a lot of Indigenous nations flew their own flag. So that's, that's the, around the 17. 17- 61 i want to say is pontiac's rebellion 1763 uh, 17 1763 1763 yeah so uh and then the treaty of niagara in 1764 and the treaty of fort stanwix in, in 1768 some people might argue were, were sort of signing with the other nations and sort of ratifying it in the treaty of canandaigua uh and that and that we were we were sort of dead as as a nation really by the time 1800 rolled around um Where's your sort of research going around that? Like that uh, sovereignty is important to our people, to say the least. And uh, Ariskany is a horrible, horrible event. I believe over here, at least the indigenous people call the battle the place of great sadness, just because the the tear that it did leave into the Confederacy. But to answer your question about um, was um, you know were they all dead by 1799? I believe the definitive answer is no. You are here, right, Carl? I'm still here. (laughs) (laughs) And I had to, I had to correct somebody on Twitter just the other day because they're like, you know, after the war, the Oneida were exterminated by the Americans. And I was just like, um, okay. Um, we did a lot of bad things to the Oneida. Yes. 
but they were not exterminated. They're still here. They're very vibrant. They're very active. They're very low vocal. <laughs> uh, sometimes I think that people, uh, what's, what's the word I'm looking for? Are well-meaning political activists that don't know anything? <laughs> <laughs> no. Hey, those don't uh, exist down there, do they? Those might be our first 10 episodes, but why you got to bring that up? <laughs> but I, I think the problem is the education system is um, they only focus on the trail of tears and genocide, which we definitely, uh, don't get me wrong, yes, definitely, definitely, definitely need to focus on that. But they leave out all the contributions that are there. And so kids going through school, unless they meet an indigenous person, kind of think that they literally all are gone. Yeah. Uh, You're crazy, but I run into people like this. And it's like, no. And, you know, I can understand that if you live in a state where they all were removed. But here in New York, we have literally like 50 miles away, we have several Seneca reservations, uh, Tuscarora Reservation, Onondaga Reservation. Uh, the United do have a small strip of land. It's not exactly a reservation, but I mean, they're here and the Mohawk up towards the Canadian border. So, I mean, it's not like they're not around, but people just are, are very ignorant on that. And so what's your thought? Why, why do you think people think that you guys are all gone? <laughs> I think I think it's political I think it's political convenience honestly there uh if if you look at this sort of uh because I happen to live in uh uh what's now called Canada there I think there's a different legal way that indigenous people are are handled and we've talked about about being treaty indians and status indians and mm-hmm. indian this and indian act indians and and everything else and in the states uh, or on the other side of the imaginary line as as I like to say there uh there's a sort of tribal sovereignty system that I haven't studied and and reviewed with great depth uh but I've been to a couple of the Haudenosaunee reservations on the on the state side uh and I think that I think that those lines are drawn for political convenience and I think that it's a little ludicrous the way that that history is used to reinforce that. But but when I was talking about the so-called death of the Iroquois, um, I think I think that those are those are narratives that are fed by maybe some of the people that you've used for research tools, like like Elizabeth Tooker and like William Fenton and and uh, like Shimoni and like a lot of the a lot of the so-called experts on the Iroquois people will will sort of put us into this anthropological box. And put us on the shelves of the walls of the museum, and and sort of say, well, that's that. And I think if you've mm-hmm. if you've been to Ganondigan and seen the living Iroquois history, I mean, you can see that that we're we're still here, right? Yeah, and it's and other people kind of think, okay, well, after the Revolutionary War, they kind of disbanded and went all over the continent. And to some case, that is true. There's the Seneca Cayuga Nation in Oklahoma, and you know, a lot of Oneida in America, in the United States, are out in Wisconsin now. So they felt that, you know, once that once they dispersed, that the Confederacy was pretty much dead. But that really still isn't the case. I mean, even in the 19th century and today, just because you were spread abroad doesn't mean that the Confederacy wasn't rebound and uh, reinforced. And this, I mean, everyone still meets at Onondaga every year. The Sachems still get together. They still hold the councils. And as you have pointed out in your shows, that uh, the Haudenosaunee in Canada declared war on Germany in World War One and World War Two. So, how could, if your government didn't exist as a strong unified thing, how are you guys possibly declaring war? Yeah, then, and that's fair. And I guess the the modern the modern political nation states of Canada and the United States they're they're younger than the nations that that preceded them. And I think, I mean, America is obviously huge. Uh, and hugely influential, the number one economy in the world and all kinds of, you could say, all, you know, biggest army and, and loudest president. And you could say all <laughs> kinds of things about, about the Americans. Right. But, but it'll never change the the fact that the idea of a nation of the United nation that, that I'm a member of, or, or the, the idea of being one of the member nations of the Anishinaabe, like Sean, I mean, those, those ideas do precede the modern nation state. Um, so it's, it's frustrating when historians and anthropologists and, and other people want to, again, put us in a box and talk about the people that once were to us and we have to, you know, listen to it, open the textbook and see it. It's, it's, it's hard. Yeah. I think a classic example is, um, when we were trying to, you know, like you said, it's hard to get down quote unquote prehistory. 
because a lot of the books that we first read, you know, said that the Confederacy was founded in like the 1670s or maybe the 1720s, uh, probably to deal with the European incursions. And that's totally different than what the traditional oral things say, saying, no, uh, our Confederacy has been around for centuries, maybe even close to a millennia. And we had to we had to weigh this. It's like, okay, this is what the experts are saying. And this is what the indigenous people are saying about their own history. And when we actually looked into researching it and saying, okay, well, in the peacekeep in the peacemaker story, there's an eclipse. And when an eclipse passes over Ganand again, what, when did that happen? And they, they do the thing and lo and behold, one happens in, I think it was 1451 and another one happened in the 12th century. Uh, the dates are, out of my head right now. But, um, and then have you ever heard of the, the Tadadaho stick? Mm, no. Okay. I, I haven't found much on it, but supposedly there was this uh, stick where they would notch every time a new Tadadaho was selected and it had so many knocks on it. And, you know, if I'm wrong, you can, you can call me out on it and say, no, no, uh, I'm on a Daga and that has nothing to do with anything. But, um, Supposedly, they they did uh, an estimate based on the total length of how long a Tadadaho would be alive. And they put the knocks back together, and it went all the way back to the 12th century. We so, actually, yeah, Jock, Jock Hill did a presentation back in November for, uh, we're fortunate, we have an institute over here called the Six Nations Polytechnic that's been putting together historical research. They had a research symposium. I don't know if you've ever heard of, of Jock Hill, but he's he's one of our very highly uh, uh, respected knowledge keepers. And he did, he did talk about how, if, yeah, if you time that out, that uh, it's, it's likely that the Confederacy is, is much older than I think a lot of historians would, would want to acknowledge. Yeah. And so, I mean, people could, you know, downplay it, but it's like, that makes the six nations, the oldest, I'm not exaggerating, the oldest continuous uh, representative democracy in the world. Yeah, uh, it's it's no it's no contest. Mic drop. Shout out to Six Nations. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I, I mean, but even even getting lost in the sort of he said she said of of what time and when and where. I mean, it it doesn't. There, there's a line in a movie called uh, called Six Mile, which is all about uh, uh, Caledonia and land reclamation. And one of the clan mothers in the movie talks about how when when the Europeans were bringing their women over in chattel the Haudenosaunee women were, were running the communities and running the villages and, and were truly mm -hmm. the, the autonomous leaders of everything. So again, I mean, you can get lost in the sort of nuts and bolts of, of what is and what isn't, but, but even in America now, I think, I think there's a strong case to be made that, that women haven't achieved equitable status. I mean, they make less for the same work as a lot of men and traditionally women's roles are paid less than, than a lot of men's roles. And, and again, I guess, I guess that's the thing is, is I, you'll never get me to talk about the death of the Iroquois again. I, I think uh, I, I heavily quote Dr. Bob Anton Gant, who, who said we were never conquered. We never surrendered. And we were never defeated openly in, in the plane of battle. So by all modern and respected conventions, we've maintained our sovereignty. We, we've fought for that. But further than that, I, I think the point that I want to impress upon people is that we have some values that predate American and Canadian values that, that I think could offer a way out of some of the messes that maybe Western society has, has created a little bit. Well, do go on. <laughs> <laughs> so, but I, some of it, some of it is, is learning about our ways and, and learning about our teachings and, and understanding that even, even concepts such as Canada and America and, and nation states and, and drawing lines on the back of our mother is something that we think is offensive. And that's something that I was born in Buffalo but raised primarily in Fort Erie, but until 9-11 happened, I mean, I, I went back and forth interchangeably, right? Like we would go over to get the gallon of milk because it was a third of the price across the river, right? And, <laughs> and there was a time when, when it would have been, it would have been nothing. There was hardly any distinction between Niagara Falls, New York and, and Niagara Falls, Canada. And those are the types of things that I guess they, they make me question the relevance of modern nation states, right? Like why, why does it really matter? Why do they have, I, I can understand that there was some traffic across the border that led to some factors in 9-11, right? But do you really need armed guards on both sides of the river between Canada and the United States? Like, is that where the next great threat is going to happen? 
I don't know. Seems seems ludicrous to me. So, but I'm I guess I'm getting off on on political <laughs> tangents here. So, um, I guess I'll get back to the script a little bit. Um, there, how many how many newer researchers do you use in a lot of your research? Like, how do you? What's your? Do you mind sort of showing us the magic behind the curtain a little bit? What's what's your process for for your show? How do you how do you decide how you're going to get to where you're going to get when you do episodes? Well. Right now, we've basically been going linearly through time. So when the when the next event happens, that's what we start reading about. So we we draw from a lot of things. We we've let read a lot of uh, newer authors. Like we did read fourteen ninety one just to see what it was all about. And uh, you know, I should pull up my bibliography right here now. But uh, other books, like we we just did one. Um, by Edward Butts on uh, Simon Gertie. And, but that's good to get a general overview, but mainly when we want to get into the nuts and bolts to find out what really happened is believe it or not, we go, we go way back. And by way back, I mean, uh, not Francis Park, not Francis Parkman, but even further back. I mean, we'll read him too, but don't get me going on him. Uh, (laughs) Oh no, please do. (laughs) Well, Francis Parkman, he really started, I give him a little bit of credit. He really start was the first historian that tried, but he's incredibly biased. And he just whole, I mean, his book, The Conspiracy of Pontiac. I mean, Pontiac didn't have a conspiracy. He was trying to stop encroachment. That's no conspiracy. It's not like Pontiac was sneaking around with spies trying to uh, uh, undermine the American or British government. Uh, but anyway, all that being said is uh, what we try to do generally is go back and read the letters. Uh, the internet is a wonderful thing and uh, people are all into founding fathers and their documents. And so the complete libraries of all the letters written back and forth from George Washington to uh, Sir William Johnson and numerous other commanders and people, it's all there. And uh, you're like, well, isn't that stuff biased? Of course it's biased. That's why we want to read it because we want to see what they were thinking and what their biases were. And then we try and line those biases up with, what really happened. And so when you see somebody reading and saying, oh, the, forgive me, uh, the savages are attacking such and such an outpost and this many were there and this, this happened here and their, their ringleader was so-and-so, it, it really gives you a, a feel. But then conversely, not everybody's letters are so blatantly anti-Indigenous. And there's a lot of, I guess what we would call today, allied people and especially missionaries. And again, you can talk about missionaries and what they did. Okay, I I get that. But a lot of them had ill intentions, but a lot of them had good intentions, which backfired because they destroyed indigenous culture. But they show a lot of more day-to-day life and showing how people felt, how people understood things, how people lived day-to-day. And so we can glean a lot of stuff from that too. And then the, the difficult thing is filtering that all out so that, you know, we don't, and of course, uh, I'm I'm a Caucasian man. Of course, my stuff is not going to be 100% pure. We understand that. We know that some of our bias is going to come through when we produce the show, and we try to limit that as much as possible. But uh, we try to do the best job that we can at the same time. That's cool. No, I'm I'm glad that you you shared that process a little bit. I I like the way that the show has gone. I think um, in 1701 i'm not sure how much you guys touched on it but um there was a period where the treaty of nanfan was signed between between the iroquois and the english or the haudenosaunee and the english the treaty of montreal was signed between the haudenosaunee and the french and the the dish with one spoon principles were agreed to and and i checked with with uh, a local elder that we sometimes consult and he said that uh the Haudenosaunee really tried to persuade the Anishinaabe into an alliance for for the latter part of the 1600s, but the Anishinaabe were basically kicking our butts all over <laughs> southern Ontario, so uh, uh, there wasn't necessarily a need a need to do it. But um, I, I have seen some American writers talk about talk about how that uh, is one of the sort of marvels of of modern. Uh, negotiation and of diplomacy and that in 1701 when when those three agreements were all sort of signed at once that it it created a framework of of peace a sort of international convention 
that could establish some sort of peace in the area. Of course, that didn't it didn't work out over the next fifty years or so. There was a lot of fighting between between all the parties that were involved. Um, but I noticed that uh, uh, I'd be curious to see if if you guys have any other resources around that particular period. That's one that's one area that sort of jumped out that that I thought set the template for peace. And I thought was the sort of underlying factors between the the Treaty of Niagara that that I also think think sort of didn't didn't necessarily come up a lot in the show, um, but I'm not sure if that's if that's a sort of period of of history that that you've explored at all around the Treaty of Niagara, uh, 1764, uh, and and any of the significance around that particular agreement. There, right now, the Chiefs of Ontario, for example, they consider the area that Sean and Sean and I are in right now, the, the one dish, one spoon territory to actually be treaty of Niagara territory. They see it as being the sort of seminal treaty that, that really allowed Canada to be founded as an independent nation state. So I don't know if you have anything around, around that period. No, I'm going to, I'm going to plead ignorance and not comment on it because I'm just not that well-informed. The, the problem is, uh, when we started the show, people are like, well, how are you going to possibly find enough material to, to cover? You know, there's just not a lot out there. And now we've produced, I think, close to 57 episodes. And we're still just getting out of the American Revolution. We've still got 200 years of history to go. Yeah. So uh, there's just so much there. And sometimes, unfortunately, we just have to mention stuff in passing really quickly. So I, we... I'm sorry, we did not really cover the Treaty of Niagara in great detail. We did cover the Treaty of 1701. Uh, we focused a lot on the French Treaty, and we mentioned the English one a little bit, but not too much. Okay. No, I, I'm just curious. I mean, it's uh, actually going back to the the book 1491. I mean, I think that Charles C. Mann quotes Vine Deloria a lot and talks about the political agenda of, of Indigenous people. So, and I think that I think that's maybe where where Sean and I come from too. Is that that we do we do have those political leanings because the the idea that that history plays a role in in our modern political status. I mean, I think I think that's pretty relevant. So I wasn't I wasn't trying to give you a hard time or being like, oh, you should go yeah. back and but it, redo these treaties. It's or definitely like- true. Uh, you know, obviously we live on the other side of the imaginary line, and so you know we're going to focus more on the the United States treaties and. From what I've you know read and seen, I mean the Haudenosaunee really, you know, people talk about their warfare and how they conquered, you know, through the Beaver Wars, most of northeastern North America. But if you look at it diplomatically, they were sending wampum belts to negotiate treaties and alliances with other nations just as much, and that really led to their expansion of their confederacy with the other props more than warfare, especially later on. It was really through diplomacy and ambassadors and emissaries and delegations uh, with with everybody. And then they had to contend with not just the British, but they had to contend with all the different colonies. And that's what gets lost in everything as well. And th- that's what makes history so much more complicated because you're not dealing with one government. You're dealing with six nations is in a confederacy dealing with a bunch of other colonies dealing with the British government. And so it just it makes everything befuddled and messy. Yeah, it's sticky. I mean, I I often wonder if I had a time machine and I could only pick one era to go back to, which <laughs> which one it would be. But it would probably be somewhere in the 1700s. I mean, I think we uh, there there's a scholar around here, uh, Josh Manitowabe, that I'm going to give a shout out to that is actually doing his PhD thesis in the history of Indigenous people in the 1700s. So I guess that's why that's why I sort of focused on those two particular events, the 1701 treaties. And then the 1764, and to a lesser degree, the 1768 treaties. Um, but even, I mean, you even mentioned Canandaigua, and I, I try to listen to as much John Kane as possible. I don't know if you've listened to John Kane's Let's Talk Native. Uh, he's got a radio show and a podcast as well. Uh, but but he'll he'll talk quite critically about the Treaty of Canandaigua. He he's one of the detractors that says that Canandaigua is when we we really uh, surrendered our rights to the United States, and that if you if you look at actually if you look at the Canandaigua Belt itself, when when it shows the Americans, the thirteen people that represents the Americans, I think they're actually physically bigger than the Indigenous people in the treaty, and he'll he'll sort of point that out as being a sort of sign of of uh i guess bowing to the colonial pressure and and that kind of stuff so i don't know how much you guys are going to cover i think you're coming up to i think you guys are in what the the 1790s right now right yeah we're uh right now we're going 
we're going to do an episode on um, Blue Jacket and Little Turtle. We got to deal with them real quick. I mean, the, the Six Nations aren't really involved, but we have to explain why they're not involved because they're making treaties with the Americans and that's what helps keep them out of the war. Um, but then we're pretty much going to be focusing an entire episode on the Treaty of Canadagua. And uh, that's his opinion. My, my opinion, I mean, it's, it's not worth much. I'm not indigenous, but um, I, I kind of view it as the opposite. I view it as identifying indigenous rights because the issue that was going on here was that New York State was taking advantage of the Six Nations at the time. And they were kind of strong arming them into signing away their land. And George Washington stepped in and he sent a guy named Pickering to Canandaigua to negotiate it because they only wanted the Six Nations to deal with the United States government because, uh, and again, I mean, obviously America didn't have the best interests of the Six Nations looking out for them, but the Six Nations felt that the United States government would have better, lesser, in, um, would treat them a little bit better than New York State would because New York State is right on their doorstep knocking. And so, uh, whether it's good or bad, uh, people like uh, Handsome Lake seem to think that the treaty was good because he said that George Washington is the only white guy that's allowed in Indian heaven. Yeah. <laughs> after after the treaty was signed, and uh, Corn Planter liked it too, and it, it gave him and his family uh, a large amount of land. And uh, uh, until Kennedy stole it all, but that's another show. <laughs> uh, but. Um, the the treaty has it been infringed on yes but every single year the united states government brings the linens uh and drops them off on treaty day as stipulated you know, they're supposed to give them so many yards of blankets and so much money every single year and the united states government sends a representative every year and they deliver the goods that are stipulated in the treaty and we have the the ceremony on the lawn at treaty rock so um, it, it really is a, a good time uh, whenever I'm there. I, I really fully appreciate it. I've been going every year that I possibly can. And every year it's just a, a powerful ceremony. This year we actually planted a, a, a white pine on the, the lawn by the, the rock. And so that was nice to see a, a tree of peace planted there. Nice, nice. Yeah, I, I, uh, I'm not necessarily saying that I agree with John Kane. And what he has to say about the Treaty of Canandaigua or the Treaty of Pickering or the George Washington Belt or whatever, whatever kind of name you want to you want to give it. Um, I, I am curious to see how it ties to uh, I, I think that we legally have more sovereignty than Canada and the United States want to acknowledge. And, and I would take a community like Aquasasani, the Aquasasani Mohawks, and talk about how they've they've been ripped apart. Right. Like they. They, literally yeah literally they've been ripped apart by the modern nation states and and it's it's not fair they uh again for listeners that don't know i don't know how much we talked about it on our show but they uh they have territory that's in what's now called ontario canada they have territory in what's now called quebec canada and they have territory in what's now called new york state of the united states of of america but it's all one community and it, I, I went there. They had a great law recital about three years ago. And I went there with my family and spent the week there. And we camped and we stayed and listened to the teachings and everything else. And and when you're traveling from the New York State side of Aquasasne to the Ontario side of Aquasasne, you have to cross two large bridges. You have to go to, to the island that the Aquasasne community is on. You actually have to drive past the island, check in with customs on the Canadian side of the border, and then come back onto the island. So even though you're already there, they they make you drive across a, another entire bridge, go through the customs process and and check in. And that's even if you don't leave the reserve because you're traveling from so-called United States of America to, to so-called uh, Ontario, Canada. So, um, but how this ties into what we're talking about now is, is that if if these treaties are truly valid, if the Canandaigua, the Treaty of Canandaigua truly stands, if the Treaty of Niagara truly stands, then the agreements were already made that, that Aquasasne is really sovereign territory and that if it's, if it's Indigenous people, then Indigenous people themselves should be deciding who checks in with what and, and where, right? Yeah. So, um, yeah, we, we've gone all over the place. I don't know. Do you have any, do you have any thoughts? 
I'm just an Ojibwe boy sitting here listening to you guys talk about Iroquois in history. <laughs> Sean's but probably it, sitting over there going, oh boy, the story of my life living here while people talk about how awesome the Dunashone are. No, it's, it's fantastic. It is. It's, uh, it's an eye-opening experience. I don't want to get in, involved too much because uh, I'm not a expertise in either of the fields. I mean, you want to talk politics maybe, but when it comes down to the history, I'll sit here, drink my coffee, and go on Twitter. Fair enough. How uh, I I uh, I can't reiterate enough that that I love the show. Uh, I think that uh, I mean you passed a comment earlier about about being sort of the fact that you can't help that you're white guys, and uh, that's that's hundred percent true. Uh, I though Sean and I do talk about cultural appropriation and being careful around that kind of stuff. I don't, and I I don't think you do any of that. I think you're very sensitive to the material and and really set a, a good example. So so again, I I think I reached out to you early in the show when I first started listening. I think I shot you a tweet that. Just just said yo i'm an oneida and and i think your show is pretty pretty cool so uh, uh i i'm glad that i got a chance to to reiterate that on on the air um yeah i think it's cool what you do i think uh as we near the end of our conversational arc i'm curious how far are you gonna go i for me there's a big gap after after 1812 and the research that i've done everything that i've and even modern treaties like even the uh seneca nation of indians as they're called if you look at a lot of the rights that were granted to them by the United States, they actually trace back to uh, the Treaty of Niagara, believe it or not. Like they're, again, I don't know how much you know about local local history here in the Buffalo sort of Niagara Falls, New York area, but uh, the, the Seneca Nation of Indians, basically, from what I understand, they they own Grand Island. And that was historically overlooked for a couple hundred years <laughs> until someone went back and said, oh, crap, this island that there's, you know, thousands and thousands of Americans living on happily actually belongs belongs to the Senecas. And if I understand legally, that actually goes back to the to the Treaty of Niagara all the way back. So I don't know if you know anything about any of that. I don't. I'm sure I'll be reading about it. And when I get there, uh, that should be fun to to dive into. <laughs> yeah. So, well, then, and that, that segues to my next question. How how far are you going to go? You're you're in 1790. I, I loved your last episode, by the way. Now this is where I'm going to be a bit of a gushing fanboy, but... Uh, I listened to uh, I listened to your episode about the Delaware Christians, and I mean, it almost brought tears to my eyes to think that uh, it it did to my. I'm just when just researching it, I was I mean, literally crying just reading the journals of uh, of Zeisberger. It was just like, oh my goodness! And then while recording it, we were both tearing up. It's just so powerful, and I, I was more ashamed that I had never even heard about it until I started uh, this podcast. Is just how how does stuff like this get overlooked? Yeah, and I, I hadn't heard about it either. Uh, so again, that's why I think your show I think your show is a service, and I I don't want to ruin it for any any listeners that that haven't heard it. So I'm not gonna I'm not gonna get into to every little detail, but I think I think that uh, you had a group of people that were doing everything right on paper, and still they managed to be marginalized. And this is a story from from the late 1700s. But I would make the argument that that in the past several weeks here, we've we've had members of the indigenous community that that are doing everything right, and still the nation state continues to marginalize our people. So it, I mean, it it almost serves as a cautionary tale for moving forward for for our own people. That how much do you drink the punch? Like even though they were they were people of faith and they were good people living a good life, it's still the system. They got caught up in the system, and it it really. Again, without spoiling it, I, I just want to tell everybody, go go and listen listen to the episode and then maybe think about how much those lessons reflect upon our modern times and, and what's happening now in 2018. Um, so, but I did have a question in there. How, how far, how far are you going to go? I think, I think you say early in the podcast, you're looking at a couple dozen, maybe three dozen episodes and, and I think you're what, sitting around 50? Yeah, 50, I think 55 right now. And you're maybe and halfway through, three quarters of the way through. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think what we've decided is we're probably going to go to the 1960s because I want to talk about uh, the corn planter track and um, the the Tuscarora Reservation when the the Water Authority seizes the land with and the rise of Clinton Rickard and the I believe it was the they found the Indian Defense League. Is that right? That's right. That's, okay. That's our make sure. boy Clinton I haven't Rickard read too and... much about it yet, but um, probably touch on that. And I think we don't want to go much further just because, I mean, politics is the third rail. And I think Caleb and I just decided we're not indigenous and we just need to stay away from modern politics. It just sounds like it can't go 
can't go good for us no matter what we do. So <laughs> I think we're probably going to go through the 1960s and uh, maybe we'll do one final episode to wrap up with a modern perspective. Maybe that's something that we could invite you on to uh, talk about. Someone from a different perspective can, can speak on uh, where things sit currently because we just feel like, you know, it's fine for us to talk about dead people, but when we're talking about people that are still alive, <laughs> it just, it just it seems wrong. Well said. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was pretty solid. Yeah, I'm 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 down to help in in any way, shape, or form. I think I think you're right with the '60s because I think there was the Kinzua Dam at the same time yes. that the Tuscarora had one tenth of their land expropriated, and the dissenting Supreme Court justice even even said that uh, a nation that seeks to be honorable should stay true to its word. Or something along those lines, but then they still went and expropriated the land and flooded the area, and and it's uh yeah, there it's still is having modern ramifications in Tuscarora. They're still they're still at risk of losing farmland where they can grow Tuscarora white corn, which is which is one of the superior. Don't tell don't tell Gary Parker that I said the Tuscarora mm-hmm. white corn might be the superior white corn. Um, maybe it's Seneca white, but uh, yeah, it still has modern ramifications. All the Aquasosni that we were talking about. Um, that's, that's right after they built the St. Lawrence canal project, which ripped through that area. That's at the peak of the Reynolds aluminum factory that contaminated all the soil there. So yeah, there is a sort of, uh, those are maybe things started to change after too, because there was a wave of activism in the seventies. So maybe things did get, did get a little political as we did get a little more self-determined moving into the, the latter half of the 1900s. So I think I think I'll uh, I'll definitely listen no matter what, uh, no matter how many episodes you guys do. It's 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 been it's been a really good show. So what I've heard is we're going on a road trip. Let's do it. Road trip. <laughs> yeah, next time you're down, definitely we'll invite you over. Okay, All cool. Right. We'll see All you in a couple right. hours. <laughs> All right, maybe we can do a live Canandaigua episode. Huh? Well, All right. Trevor, hey, Trevor uh, our producer. We'll see. Yeah. So <laughs> the um. There's a thing we like to do on our show, and it's called the traveling thought. What What's the traveling thought based on, Sean? I don't know. <laughs> well, I have one. Oh, do you? Perfect. Yeah. And by thought, I just mean I'm going to steal a quote from somebody. Deal. Sounds good. Okay. So this this is a quote by Jacob Ezra Thomas. Uh, he was a Cayuga leader and faith keeper. And, Jake um, Thomas. Yeah. And so this is what he said. He said, quote, there are no experts in Iroquois culture. When we come together, we say that we put our minds on the table. That way, if you have knowledge that I can use, I can borrow it. And if I have knowledge you can use, you can borrow it. We always have something to learn. That's beautiful. So actually one of my favorite quotes. Yeah, I don't, I don't, think, uh, I don't think I can top that. No, not at all. No. So uh, on that note, you, you've you been listening to One Dish, One Mic on the Niagara Podcasters Network with a special, uh, special guest, the Iroquois History Podcast, here at the Papa Podcast Studio in sunny St. Catharines. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Love you guys. Eva. Thanks for listening to One Dish, One Mic on the Niagara Podcasters Network. Your hosts are Carl Dockstader and Sean Vanderplus. Recording is done at the Papa Podcast Studio at Cowork Niagara home of Niagara's independent workforce. Executive producer is Trevor Twining. Production assistance by Daniel Twining. Show artwork by Mitch Baird. Music by DJ Shub, used with permission. If you have show ideas or comments, you can reach us on Twitter at Niagara Podcasts. <laughs>